I've always said as a country, if you're going to send people to war, you have to be willing to come home and take care of them. You cannot make these guys fit into this mold because it's convenient for you. Hey, Power the Nation. Today, we're going to take a little serious turn towards the podcast, and we're going to discuss something with our guest, Samantha Case, who is a clinical psychologist working with soldiers dealing with PTSD using a holistic approach of strength training and individual psychotherapy to help these individuals manifest into who they need to be. I mean, you know, we were at war for over two decades. A lot of soldiers came back broken and she's taken this holistic approach, realizing that there were limitations in her own practice and finding a way to help these individuals rehab so that they can lead their best life. Mm -hmm. And taking the best things of the military that the, the people are familiar with, team building, training, working together, that power of movement and camaraderie and providing an opportunity then to, to get back onto a team. So all too often, I think individuals start to fall by the wayside when they weaken. And, you know, I mean, uh, you know, you see all the quotes from, you know, uh, weak things don't break and, you know, all these different mantras and, uh, you know, macho terms and, you know, cliches that people throw out there. But there's really some validity in towards building a big, strong platform with which to build your life. And that platform is strength health and more importantly resilience and that comes underneath a barbell uh-huh and i mean she's doing amazing work helping combat veterans transition into civilian life and one thing we want to announce is that any power athlete coach that's been through our, our block one test and network they're going to be a part of this project resilience so then they can provide this opportunity they are going to be switched on and, and connect with samantha learn her tools and process so wherever you are in the united states you have the opportunity to connect with a block one coach that's in your area and then samantha's going to help find the right fit when it comes to a, a psychologist which is cool uh the one thing i really appreciated was just her candor and moxie and just the, her her drive to basically get on a plane come out here to austin to do the podcast in person because she felt that it was too important to phone in mm-hmm. and uh, that was not only made for a much more rich experience but also a more personal one and uh, an excellent podcast. So I think you guys are you know, in store for a good one. And while it does have a little bit more of a serious connotation than normally what we do, I think it's extremely beneficial. And I think you guys are going to dig it. And yeah, her goal is awareness. Similar to our mission with Wade's Army, she wants people to hear about this in case you have a friend, a colleague, or you hear about somebody that may need this. This is the opportunity. So... Uh, we'll link up everything you need to know in the show notes, and Samantha will will lay it all out here and everything you need to know to, to help out if you know somebody that's in need. Cool. All right. Well, tune in. Samantha Case. Hey, Mr. Quilty. Good to see you on another episode of Power Athlete Radio. Well, thanks for having me, John. We are joined by Samantha Case. How would you formally introduce your title? I don't know the, the psychologist breakdown. So I'm a clinical psychologist with a focus on combat PTSD. So I'm a traumatologist. And founder of Project Resilience. And then we have Raw Performance out in Orange County. So I've been a clinical psychologist with the degree for about 12 years. I've been practicing in the field of psych for about 20 years because I was giving a lot of jobs I wasn't supposed to be doing uh, based off of people wanting me to do the work. And I wanted to get paid and I didn't realize it was unethical until... After I graduated, mm. so that I can't get in trouble for. Um, started working with combat veterans uh, around eleven years ago, and I kept hearing over and over again through my contract work at the VA 
that the services being provided weren't consistent. They weren't as beneficial as they could be. So I opened up my little private practice in an attempt to help at a more focused level. And so I rented an office on Saturdays and I saw people. And about six, seven years ago, I started powerlifting with our coach, Will Haw. And I decided, well, I saw the connection between lifting heavy and being intentional versus just working out and just trying to get sweaty to doing really good therapy and where you have to be paying attention to your cues, your triggers, um, how you respond to people so that you don't have a negative, negative interaction with somebody because of your past traumas. And so in 2017, I conceptualized the idea of the gym. So me, my husband, and our coach opened up Raw Performance in 2019. So within the gym walls is my office. So any veteran that I see for treatment gets free access to the gym floor. That was the original idea. It was like, here's a gym, go get your energy out and see what you can do with it. 2020 hits. So about seven months after we opened, they shut us down. Um, that was fantastic. Uh, very, very stressful with trying yeah. to keep that open. Well, I mean, I can't imagine anything more with, uh, you know, isolation for uh, people that are really don't need isolation. So, well, that's talking about them. I mean, I just opened this thing. Like, oh, trying to run a business in California. <laughs> yes. It took us a year and a half to get the real estate space. We looked all over Orange County, but trying to have somebody. Where's the gym? Los Alamitos. Los Al? Okay. Yeah. We're like three blocks away from the joint air force base. Okay. And we finally get this place. We clean it. We paint it. We have like three pieces of equipment. It's very sad. Like the very first pictures you see of the gym, it's like the rubber weights on the floor, one rack, and like a deadlift platform that we built. And it is not that today, but that was what we had. And we slowly been building it, which is the separate side. So like raw performance in the gym is a completely different beast than what I'm doing with Project Resilience and CSRT. Mm -hmm. So again, the bigger picture. So there's RAW, which is its own entity, which the, the members and the family that we built right there is going strong and going really healthy. Like June 4th, Kabuki's coming out to do the training. And we're trying to like motivate people to come out and educate themselves on how to lift properly to prevent injury and to have consistency and longevity within the sport. And refocus some of the energy in there instead of being like, hey, buy more protein, buy more sleeves, buy more, you know, wrist wraps, like spend the X amount of money and do it right so that when you're 40, 50, 60, you don't hurt as bad. Anyways, so my office is CSRT psychotherapy. So it's combat stress reaction treatment. When we get shut down for COVID, I get really nervous and I start pushing out trying to figure out like what to do to maintain the therapy for the individuals that I'm doing. I line up with Christian, who's the Army Ranger who couldn't be here today, and we conceptualize the idea of Project Resilience. So Project Resilience is, in essence, the individual comes for me to do individual therapy once a week or twice a month, depending on the availability of the, uh, of the individual. Are your services covered with insurance? No. Okay, um, so it's all out of pocket? Mm-hmm. So is that, a, is that a major barrier for people? Generally, no. Um, I think it's an excuse sometimes because 
my fees are based off of what you're able to pay, mm-hmm. not what I want to pay my mortgage. Like what pays my mortgage is my nine to five job, my other job and the gym. Like the private practice and project resilience is an altruistic me wanting to give back to the veterans that served us. Mm-hmm. So it's never a price point. It's more a reason not to do it. Is it a hard sell trying to, I mean, I assume the part of project resilience is bringing them in and having them lift weights and teaching them that aspect. I mean, there's definitely a, um, you know, sound body, sound mind. I mean, you, know, you go back through history and looking through antiquity. I mean, you're going to see that through, you know, everything that, you know, there's definitely a connection between physical health and, and well, uh, mental well-being. So mm-hmm. I think it's pretty ingenious. I'm just curious if that's like a harder sell, but then you're dealing with military guys that are used to a physical culture. Mm-hmm. So it becomes probably an easier sell. Mm-hmm. Probably the harder sell is actually convincing them that they might need help. Or are they at the point where they're like, let's get uh, going. Yeah. I'm get going. <laughs> I'm either uh, drinking myself to sleep or sitting at home trying to brush my teeth with a 45, not realizing what's going to happen, you know, or knowing full well, what's going to happen when they're brushing their teeth that way. Um, so project resilience is say the individual's like, yes, I know there's something going on. I don't like the label of PTSD. Mm-hmm. Um, but I know I'm uncomfortable with this. And I know that you're, you've got one more resource that nobody else is doing or that I haven't looked at. And they do individual ther- therapy with me once a week or twice a month, depending on their schedules. Um, and then they have to come in once a week to do a powerlifting format type of workout with Will. So it's either the bench, the squat, or the deadlift. And then the second day of the week is with Christian, the Army Ranger, and they do a strength and conditioning program. Mm-hmm. And this is determined on the schedule. With that, we're integrating the social aspect of the workouts with the veterans. So all the veterans that see me for therapy have to go to the same groups throughout the week in order to reestablish that connection, that meaning, that purpose mm-hmm. that they had while they were in active duty. Mm-hmm. The biggest issue of getting the individual in is far like before they even get to our door. It's them sitting at home being like, okay, I don't like this. I know there's something wrong. I know I've had a higher quality of life because it doesn't matter if their wives are kicking them out because they're drunk every night or that they've lost a job or that they've hit rock bottom, it has to come from them to be like, okay, let's do this. And the individuals that are ready to do this style of program, they have to have some level of grit that they're holding on to, to then be like, okay, let's do therapy and let's work out and let's push ourselves. And it doesn't mean that they're at the highest quality of life there, but they're ready. Mm-hmm. And the most magical part of it is that when these guys are ready to go, it's phenomenal to see them go from broken and beat and tired to conquering that mountain so much faster than most other populations because they did come back from the service in which the physical aspect of it was such a connection of who they were. Some of the issues are amputations and injuries and surgeries and chronic pain which aren't getting addressed in other modalities because they just get like pain pills or, sure. well, if it hurts, if squatting hurts, stop, don't yeah. walk, just walk, just well, lay down. It's the age old, uh, let me put some electrical tape over the checking engine light, mm-hmm. you know, where it's like, oh, we'll just kind of mask it. Um, can you, uh, give us like a little bit of a clinical, I don't, I don't need necessarily a micro, but kind of a clinical macro of like PTSD because we hear it so much. Um, you know, uh, and people use it so freely, like, oh, I had a negative reaction or I was in a car accident. I had PTSD from that. Um, I played in the NFL. 
And uh, it's really fascinating because they were able to make some, I don't know if it's a bridge too far, but there was some you know correlation between guys who no longer get to play in the NFL and all of a sudden you get cut, you get injured, and you go away. And you're you know separated from this this uh, identity you've had so long, and they were saying that the ex players were having PTSD, um, and I uh, like uh, when I went through all the clinical stuff and kind of looked at the, looked at how they label it and made some sense, mm-hmm. but I'm just more interested, especially for the people listening at home, because we hear this so often <laughs> used within you know not only print but also media, whatever. Like this individual has PTSD, um, you know this guy went shot up something and he had PTSD. So uh, I'm just. Would love to have somebody, especially who's on the ground zero, kind of explain it and see if we can figure out from that point of view. So that's a tricky question in today's society. So I'm just going to stick to just being raw and if aware that I might hurt people's feelings. So I apologize in advance to anybody's feelings that I hurt. But PTSD tra- traditionally with the type of work that I do, it's have you been in a situation in which you should have died? The bullet grazed your neck. You should be dead right now. Did you shoot or kill anybody else? Or did you watch somebody get killed? Like you're in person, not through TV, not through uh, somebody's interpretation of what you heard, but you watched it happen. If you were in the service and you were dropping drones or having drones drop missiles in an area, that counts. But you're sitting at home uh, watching on TV somebody report that, that doesn't count. And then because of those situations, now your life's perspective has changed. So, you know, the analogy of rose-colored glasses, Mm -hmm. it's shit-colored glasses. So whenever you see a new situation, you see it through your life experiences of, is this thing that used to be neutral going to try to kill me? Because I've been here before. And you don't even recognize that it's happening because your body responds to all the triggers that are associated with that event. So say that the event was... This is the one I use most often. So if anybody else has heard my podcast, you're going to hear this. Um, You are on a convoy and you are driving down a village. You get slowed down and you get bottlenecked. Somebody, a kid throws something in the Humvee in front of you. You guys get ambushed. You jump out and you try to protect your friend and you watch somebody else bleed out. Now, all of the events or all of the situations revolving that event are now triggers. So you identify as like, well, what happened? It's like, well, I watched my friend get, you know, bleed out in front of me. Um, And that's it. For you, that's your story. But in reality, your body's responding to slowing down in traffic, the heat, the smells, the, the visualization of something jumping out from the corner of your eye, the explosions, the, the, the feel of the heat on your body. So that when you're at home and there's a heat wave and you start getting all anxious, you don't know why. But now you're angry and you're pissed off and you're yelling at your spouse and at your kids and you're like, if it just go home and you go get drunk, you haven't made the connection between it's actually the heat wave that reminds you of the time in which you should have died and you watch your friend get killed because now you're at home and that doesn't make any sense. You were just going to the grocery store, you got out of the car and you got hot. There's no connection. Where would you begin to unpack and help them? Is it listening to their story and then putting them in, in present? What's your approach there? Identifying triggers. We don't really get into what happened in service until months ahead. So at the beginning, it's always establishing trust. Trust takes a really long time. 
And the biggest thing I tell everybody when they're finding a therapist is if they say, trust me, I'm a doctor to get out because that's not, that's not how it goes. Like when you come in to see me for therapy, you're interviewing me for a job. Am I qualified? Do you like me? Is there chemistry? Am I saying things that you know in your head that you haven't put two and two together? And that should happen within the first 60 minutes of me just having a general conversation with you. Yeah, I usually get a little nervous if somebody says, trust me, I'm a doctor, because I've known a lot of doctors uh, that are morons, and mm-hmm. I do not trust them to even cut my lawn. So when I hear that, I'm like, ooh, this isn't this doesn't bode well for you. But some people respond really well to it. They're like, oh, good. Somebody's here to take care of me and, and, and be responsible for my well, actions. There's people that are um, very authority, uh, I guess okay. you could say like um, authority driven, mm-hmm. where they put trust in authority, whereas uh, I think I probably stem more from the side where I uh, distrust authority. Mm-hmm. Um, and and but, so do these guys. Like yeah. how many times have you heard from, because you've worked with service members. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And that they're like, well, you know, the, the people above me were making bad choices or were making decisions based off of what they thought was happening, not was actually on, you know, on the mm-hmm. ground happening. So the, the issue with authority is huge. So I'm not going to come. And plus, I'm a tiny person. Like, I'm not coming in as a, you know, grown ass man, small. So uh, is PTSD universal in terms of like, um, because the, the only thing, um, and I'm not sure if this is true or not. But uh, instances of PSD kind of tended to go down the more highly trained an individual was. Like when we work with the guys from NSW, there weren't as many individuals at least claiming PTSD as maybe some guys who were, you know, I got thrown into boot camp and then two weeks later I was, you know, somewhere bad and something happened. Like they didn't have the lead up or the training volume on the backside to necessarily prepare them for the job. I don't want to say half and half, but it's it's based off of the individual's coping and uh, support system. So if you come in all by yourself and you get put in a shitstorm really, really quick, you've got nobody to turn to. You've got nobody to mirror off of. You've got no uh, necessary like emotional support to be like, hey, that that sucked, right? Yes, that sucked. Okay, let, let's suck together. That sounded bad. But um, they're, they're with somebody else to be able to reflect the negative feelings and to express it to each other. And like in the SF community, the interactions and the relationships are so much stronger because of all the training that they did because of everything that they've gone through it tends to develop but they're able to bounce it off of each other and help one another versus the lone guy who because he got thrown in so quick doesn't have those skills to be able to be like okay what's happening and then what happens a lot of times is the guys that went in who didn't necessarily do combat have a lot of anxiety because of things that could have happened. And then that manifests completely different than PTSD. But when you're sitting at the VA, and I'm not speaking poorly of the VA, they've got a lot, a lot of people that they have to handle. But when you have a 15 minute evaluation with the doctor, you don't have the time to evaluate, is this anxiety? Is this PTSD? Is this a factor or multiple other diagnoses that could be happening? Like, okay, boop, PTSD, boom, go get your meds, get out of here, don't do anything stupid. I know people have like certain personality traits. Like I've met people that were like highly, um, you know, predisposed to addiction. Um, you know, um, in the NFL, um, you know, they gave us painkillers. I took them once or twice. Mm-hmm. I didn't like how they made me feel. I never took them again. Mm-hmm. I knew other guys that took them once and felt that they needed to take every painkiller. And uh, I used to chew them like breath mints. You know, I, I, you know, I could go out and uh, to this day I could have a drink. Mm-hmm. I knew dudes that were either, either zero or every drink. 
And I found that that was very similar also in the communities we worked with, especially in the military. Mm -hmm. I just didn't know if that was universal, but it seems that maybe certain personality types like that, like addiction, the personality might lend claim, or is it just universal to everybody based upon coping mechanisms? Oh, that's a hard, hard question to See, these are all the questions I've had in terms of PTSD because okay. I've, I've, I've met so many military guys mm-hmm. um, and guys that have, you know, uh, like it was always really interesting whenever somebody starts talking about PTSD, like the coping mechanisms or how they're, you know, part of their fight is always like addiction. Mm-hmm. And I always wondered if there was a correlation between that. So there is a correlation, but it's not causation. Cor- correlation is not causation. Yes. Yeah. So the difference from what I've seen is that If you have an addictive personality or if it's in your body chemistry, once you choose your substance, there is no really going back and forth on it. This is your drug of choice. Um, If it's, you know, nicotine, it's nicotine, and then it might, you know, go to alcohol. And if it's alcohol, you stay pretty hard in alcohol. And you're not trying to then amp up your level of sedation with another drug. You don't go to, like, meth or fentanyl and all that, you know, nonsense, because all you're trying to do is get that level of calm. And so your body becomes addicted to it. So it has nothing to do with, I'm trying to get rid of the nightmares. I'm trying to get rid of the anger. You're just like, I just want to be drunk. Like, leave me the F alone. I just want to get drunk. And then the PTSD becomes secondary. But the individuals that have PTSD and use substances as a way to cope really do use it as a way to survive in the world. So Okay, I got triggered this morning. I got, or the usually don't say I got triggered. Like I got in a fight with my spouse. Uh, my boss is a dick. Oh, I can say that. Yeah, you can curse as much <laughs> as you want. We're not a PG thirteen by okay. any means. Um, right, I just, I just need to relax. And so they take one drink, two drinks, three drinks, and then they black out, whatnot. Um, and then they wake up the next morning. They're like, "Oh, damn it! I shouldn't have done that." Like I'll try to do better today. Um, and then once. The wife tries to kick them out four times. They move on to the next substance. And the substance doesn't necessarily need to be drugs or alcohol. Then it could be gambling or it could be porn or it can be any number of things that they can become obsessed with. And sometimes it does become working out. They're working out so much and they're so stringent in their eating and in their supplement taking and uh, working on specific body muscles because then they don't have to think about the memories of what happened, you know, when they were uh, deployed. Mm-hmm. Because if they're focused on trying to exhaust themselves and getting, you know, 300 calorie burn in 20 minutes, or whatever it is, they're not remembering the fact that they missed their friend. They're not remembering that it's, you know, the anniversary of the time that, you know, that, you know, Humvee got blown up. And so it's just, it keeps shifting. So you can be like, okay, I stopped drinking. So now I'm going to do this. And now I'm going to do that. And I'm going to do that. And that's where you see the difference between, um, the, the levels of addiction with, um, I mean, there's some historical precedents with this where, uh, it seems like every war and every generation has these different tags associated with PTSD, like a uh, shell shock. Um, what do they call it? Like trench sickness. I mean, there's always these different names. Uh, my grandfather, um, lived in England when the Germans were bombing world war one. And then they, they sent all the, all the kids basically to Canada. They got them out because they were worried that the Germans were going to come and kill everybody. Uh, my, I guess it would be my grandfather's brother actually fought in World War One, and uh, got gassed. And pretty much when he went to Canada to live with his brother, um, he sat in a rocking chair underneath a, 
like a blanket in front of the fire, regardless if it was a hundred degrees out or, you know, negative 20 and he was cold all the time and couldn't, and he just basically just rocked himself. And, uh, my mom told me the story. She's like, yeah, uncle George was, uh, get gassed, mustard gassed in the, um, in the trenches in somewhere in like Holland, Germany. And, uh, you know, was shell shocked and was never right, mm. you know, and just lived his life and his brother took care of him. And just, it was just a super sad deal. And, um, like that was, you know, these guys came home broken and they didn't necessarily have a coping mechanism for it. So they just sat in the rocking chair. Mm -hmm. But if you, you know, you go through and you look at these different, uh, you know, Vietnam, those guys came home and weren't, weren't really excited to enter back into society. So you see like the rise of the biker gangs and 1% mm -hmm. or stuff and, you know, looking for brotherhood and not wanting to live in society. Mm -hmm. So it's pretty interesting that like every war has some kind of group associated with it. And it's only been, you know, within the last probably what, 20 years that PTSD has actually become a clinical kind of way to describe it. Well, CSRT, um, combat stress reaction treatment was actually the term used prior to PTSD. That was the actual clinical term for what we call trauma now. And that's actually why I chose the name because I didn't want it to be like Samantha's therapy office. Sure. So I went with that. And then PTSD, the label came up in the 1980s, early 1980s. Mm -hmm. But there was this idea that these guys were just oh, yeah. uh, like uh, you needed to be tougher. Uh, you know, obviously you were a coward and this. I mean, there was all this stigma attached to it that they were somehow uh, broken. broken and not men. Mm -hmm. You know, if you were a real man, you'd be able to come home and get right back into it. But, mm -hmm. I mean, this has existed for a long, long time. Oh, absolutely. Every single war. Um, you know, even prior to, you know, our civilization, there's, you know, some levels of documentation showing that the individual would come back different than how they left and as they should it is a normal emotional response to see fucked up stuff and come back seeing the world different you're not supposed to go over there and get ambushed or you know do the tasks that you're required to do as a service member and come back unscathed like that's always my example with people like they're like yeah well you don't understand um and which i don't by no means do i understand i can comprehend it sure. i can hear it but i do not understand their experience but if you go over there and you have to shoot a child who's about to shoot you and you come back quote unquote messed up you're supposed to you're supposed to have nightmares about it you're supposed to be uncomfortable but if what if you, you don't go, come messed up that's where i that's yeah. where i was yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's <laughs> <laughs> it's like okay let's let's just say who what's the name of the person who how would you label them that goes and shoots another individual in the face and comes back and has no issue with it. What are they? Sociopaths? Yes. Complete sociopaths, psychopaths, depending on. But I mean, is there something to be said about like, um, because when I, uh, you know, we were fortunate to work with a lot of guys in Naval Special Warfare and within the SEAL teams. And I always ask them about this. And they're kind of, uh, um, the way it's explained is that they're training. Uh, they have so much training mm -hmm. leading up to that point. Uh, opposed from people that are just thrown in that you've been indoctrinated into this training program. Uh, I've gone through all these different schools, selection, whatever that like the buildup is so much more dramatic mm -hmm. that it doesn't seem, or maybe they've, they've just become numb to it. So it doesn't ha affect them in the same way. Yes. Um, the other messed up part of it is when I first started working uh, with these individuals of veterans, it was mostly Vietnam guys. They were 60, 70 years old. And they're like, damn it, I should have done this when I was 20. I should have done this when I just got out. Like, were the services out there? Yes. Uh, was it the best type of treatment for guys that came back from combat? Probably not. Um, but there were services. 
However, when you come back 20 years old, pissed off at the world, you just did all of these things. You're emotionally not ready to sit down with somebody and be like, okay, this is what happened. And the spouses are saying it. And then you turn 30 and you can't keep a job. And you're like, oh, it's the system. It's the government. It's the job. It's everyone's greedy. So then you start to isolate. So then you start pushing all your friends away. And again, I'm speaking in generalities. Then you hit 40. And now they're starting to be wear and tear on the body. So now it hurts a little when you get up, but you're still really pissed off. You're living on your own. You've got one or two friends that you're still hanging on to. Then you hit 50 and then 60. And now by that time, you haven't held a job. You're on your second or third marriage. You definitely have some sort of alcohol, well, not definitely, but you have like some type of alcohol or drug use. And then you can't hear as well. And your body doesn't move the way it's supposed to. So now that all the symptoms of PTSD start to get heightened. So maybe at 20, you were you had full-blown PTSD. You're hypervigilant. You were fantasizing and problem-solving of if somebody were to come in through that door, what would I do? I'd protect this person. I'd you know go for the weapon. I would X, Y, Z. And you're healthy. You can do that. It might hurt a little, but you can do it. But now you're 60. Maybe you can hear it. Maybe you can't. Maybe you can get up as quick as not or quickly or not and so now all the symptoms are heightened so you're laying in bed and now you can't sleep because you're like okay was that noise a raccoon or was that an intruder Mm. and so all the stuff that they tell you to do is contradictory to sleeping they're like put a white noise machine on no because now you're trying to listen through the white noise machine to see whether or not the noise that was outside was actually enemy or not and then they say um exhaust yourself like just work out really really hard and you'll pass out (laughs) You've spoken to SF guys. They are exhausted by the time they get to some missions and they still have to do the job and they still have to be alert and they still have to be able to take care of their guys so that they can come home. And so telling them to go work out and get exhausted makes it even worse because now they're still trying to sleep through the exhaustion, but still be attentive enough to their surroundings that they do not become um, complacent because, I mean... Anybody out there, complacency, what? Complacency kills. Yeah. As soon as you let your guard down, you're dead. It makes you lazy. Yes. And then that makes you vulnerable to anybody out there that's trying to kill you. And now, and another thing that stacks up on their side is now they're at home, they're tired, they're lonely, they're exhausted, they're broken, and they have nothing to defend themselves with. They don't have their team. They don't have a mission. They don't have anybody watching out for them. They don't have a weapon. So he's sitting here all alone in a world that's trying to kill. And we're like, well, thanks for your service. Here's your 10% tax write-off. Yeah. And that's what I'm trying to stop. I've, I've always said as a country, if you're going to send people to war, you have to be willing to come home and take care of them. Mm-hmm. And, um, I mean, it's a, it's a realization that people don't think about. You're going to send people off to do, you know, uh, you know, harm on behalf of individuals, you know, politicians that never go, uh, you have to be willing to invest in those individuals when they come home and, you know, and take care of your broken soldiers, you know, or your broken toys. I mean, it, it, yeah, it's the true. Lost of broken toys, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's like, you know, I mean, you can't send them to the Island of misfit toys. Yes. That's and, what uh, I was trying to say. Yeah. yeah. No, that in the NFL, when you get hurt and they, uh, they basically like, you no longer have a job. They basically snatch you up and save the Island of misfit toys and it happens in the same way, but, mm-hmm. um, you have to be able to take care of these guys. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, uh, like 
never having been in the service, but also not dealing in with the VA and everything, but just from like uh, what you see within the news, it doesn't look like a very uh, agile organization. It looks extremely like everything else in the military just looks extremely bloated, uh, a ton of red tape and bureaucracy and no real mission. It's just like a rudderless boat. And, and the guys that I've met that have dealt in the VA uh, have never spoken very highly of it because they're probably trying to do an impossible job. Yeah. And to some veterans, it works really great. I've heard some veterans say, I've got nothing but the best of services, nothing but the best of respect for them. But I think that you cannot make these guys fit into this mold because it's convenient for you. There are multiple resources out there available to these individuals that should fit them instead of vice versa. So there's the equestrian therapy, there's rock climbing, there's yoga, there's X, Y, Z, there's the the bike riders. That's also an interesting story of uh, when you speak to Vietnam guys that mm-hmm. started with the biking yeah, yeah, culture. We, yeah, yeah, that's a that's a whole total different topic. Uh, no, I, I've uh, um, so uh, when I lived in Philly, I was friends with some pagans. Um, um, you know, uh, people against goodness and normalcy, as I like to call them, but like one percenter guys. And there's, uh, uh, you know, so I went back and read like Sonny Barger stuff and was just always real fascinated by a little bit of that 1% biker culture. And if you get into that, a lot of that was like post-World War II, Vietnam era. These guys, these individuals came home and felt that they didn't want to re-enter society and, you know, getting on a Harley and kicking ass with a bunch of your bros all around, you know, patches and a lot of the stuff, you know, sergeant of arms and a lot of like the imagery and the use within the motorcycle club comes from some form of military background. A lot of those individuals went, uh, my uncle, uh, was in Vietnam and um, was a UDT guy uh, early on when the UDT seals were kind of separate and then um, came back and got into the LAPD and stood up their bomb squad because that's what he did over there with ordinance. Oh, nice. And uh, I just remember he was a terrible alcoholic. Mm-hmm. And when I asked my dad about it, he was like, that's all they did in Vietnam was they drank. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, and we always saw him. He was at a drink in his hand and, uh, and then it ended up killing his stomach so bad he started drinking uh, milk. And, and vodka was his drink. Oh, because it coats the stomach. Yeah, it coats the stomach. He called it a titty ball. And when he started gaining weight, so then he was drinking non-fat milk, which made it even worse. But uh, And I, I remember asking my dad, and he was a sharp dude, but he's like, you know, they take those kids, 18 years old, I'm like, what do they come back from? Mm-hmm. And uh, that's how they, that, that was their coping mechanism was, uh, was drinking. Mm-hmm. And it depends on, you know, in Vietnam, it depended on what your MOS was. Like if you're a tunnel rat, you can't be drinking. You're going to smell that for me like miles away. Um, and if you're actually out in the jungle at weeks at a time, you don't have access to, you're not going to add an additional, you know, liter of X, Y, Z of alcohol on top of all your weaponry and everything. So they're going to it raw. Like they're feeling everything, um, versus the guys that had the ability to stay back and drink or. Yeah. No, they, they were paddling out on surfboards and setting ordinance on enemy stuff, like board shorts, the whole deal. It was pretty well. I mean, surfer kid from California. Yes. Well, I thought that's what you meant because yeah. I surf a lot. So where do, uh, where do you surf in that uh, kind of low south, that kind of uh, North Orange County area? I'd rather keep that to myself so that nobody comes and like steals my surf spots. Oh, so, right. You know, Orange County area-ish. Uh, yeah, I didn't know. Uh, you could be a local <laughs> down at Trestles or something. Yeah, I'm not saying it. <laughs> I think you got it. <laughs> Yeah, through your passion for movement, surfing, training, mm-hmm. did that allow you to see connections now between what you learned about therapy and the benefits that you expressed through your training? Yes. Um, yes and no. I, I've never used working out as a way to get rid of my demons. I use working out because I like it. Like I'm the type of person that's 
like really sick and just enjoys being at the gym and I want to get sweaty and I want to push myself. And I know most of the population isn't like that. Um, there's very few people who are willing to put their bodies through that, to eat the way they're supposed to, to adhere to a level of activity and exertion that you're expected to in order to achieve the goals that you want. Like nobody else is forcing this program on you. This is something you want to do. No one's going to love you any more or any less because you have, you know, larger quads or a longer stride or a shorter sprint. You're doing that because you want it. And it's the same thing for therapy. You can have somebody beg you and cry and threaten everything they can to take away from you. And you're still not going to go to therapy. I'll do, we'll take your children. I'll take your wife. I'll take your house. They're not going to do therapy and really be engaged in therapy until they're ready to do therapy. Why, um, why is there so much negative stigma with, with therapy? I mean, we had uh, Brian Mann on the podcast and we just saw him uh, last weekend at Summerstroke. And, um, you know, he was talking about, you know, mental health and this idea that if, you know, uh, if the electricity in your house goes out or your lights don't work, you call an electrician. If your plumbing explodes, you call a plumber. You know, if something's going on on your life, why is there this negative stigma attached with reaching out and asking for help? Vulnerability and trust. You have to be able to expose yourself to somebody while trusting them at the same time to express really what's happening. And to be able to establish that with somebody that you know isn't going to judge you, that you know that no matter what, they're going to be there for you, takes a lot to ask from somebody. Like, hey, like I've never met you. I've got no other connections with you. Let's talk about the worst time of your life. How does that make you feel? How does that play out in your everyday life? How, how do you think about it? How does it affect your relationship with your spouse? That's, that's hard stuff to talk about. So I don't think it's so much a stigma as... You're completely exposed in a way that's so much more personal than taking your clothes off. And that's, that's something else. So when you have these individuals that have been in combat who are ready to put the workout in play, who are ready to do therapy and be that vulnerable to somebody, the end product is phenomenal. But it, it's asking a lot from somebody. Like that's an interesting piece in terms of vulnerability, but, um, it's kind of a cascade. Like they have to, like, do they have to reach rock bottom? I mean, is it like, you know, failed marriage is this, I mean, you know, or do you meet people that are like, everything's going well and they're just extremely vulnerable from day one, or do you find that individuals have to kind of go through like this maturation process almost? I don't even know if that's the right term for it, but like, you know, this, uh, um, you know, I've lost a job. I'm angry. My wife's kicked me out. I mean, is it like they kind of get to this point where everything is kind of crashing and they're at this rock bottom and they're finally ready to like open up and deal with it because they realize there is nowhere else to go. No. So they don't have to go through the checklist of things that, that could possibly go wrong. It's just, you know, these are just general examples. Like somebody could just know that they can do better and they have a really strong spouse that's like, look, I'm going to be here through thick and thin. You can do whatever you need to do, but I'm right here. I'm your rock. And a lot of times the person that has that secondary person, whether it be the mom or the girlfriend or the wife, or vice versa, the husband, the boyfriend, or the father, um, that's what helps them get them through the program, or any program, any mental health program, aside from mine, um, is the ability to, to have somebody to come back to and be like, I'm not going to tell you what happened in therapy, but just sit with me for a minute. Um, but it's it's their internal view of being able to, to mitigate this. I, I don't like this. this. Something feels weird. Something feels wrong. And everything I've been doing up until this point isn't working. Like, I don't need therapy. I can do it myself. 
Really? Because it's been 10 years. Is it getting better? Like, look at yourself. You don't have to tell me. But are you sleeping better? Are you able to cope with society? Are you just putting on the face? How many faces do you have? Really? There's a face for your kids. There's a face for the teachers. There's a face at work. There's a Like, aren't you tired? And you're lonely. It's so lonely. Nobody gets it. Because you can tell somebody, hey, like, I had a bad day today. And the next day. And the next day. And the next day. And they're like, enough already with the bad days. Just get over it. They're like, well, F you. I'm just not going to tell you anymore. How's your day? Great. Fantastic. Everything's fine. Everything's fine. Oh, I don't know what happened. He, he never said anything. He fucking said stuff for five years and you shut him up every time. So for the next 10 years, he didn't say anything because he didn't trust anybody to say, let me know about it. I can hear it. I can hear it over and over again. Just tell me. It's okay. And that's a lot of times what these individuals need before they go and commit suicide. Mm. It's like they need somebody to never falter. You can get mad at me. That's fine. Like the the people that I've worked with that have gotten mad at me because I pissed them off one way or another, they're the ones that have held the strongest with me. And I've made mistakes. Absolutely. There are some people I wish I could reach out to and be like, I fucked up. Just come back. Or I will just text them as much as I can to try to get them back because I know I'm not perfect. But in order for the relationship to work, you have to see that the person on the other side of the couch is also a person and we're going to mess up. It just tell me. And then with any relationship, that's what fortifies it. A big part of project resilience is community. Mm-hmm. So not necessarily just the one-on-one or relying on the person to have that external person there, but the mission of bringing, if they don't have these people two workouts together. Mm-hmm. So speak to the value of the community. It's not just the movement and the training. It's also building a team. So it started off in my house, in my gym, Um, and I was told in 2020 to make a proof of product video in order to have organizations help veterans. So I would email them and be like, Hey, I'm doing this for veterans. Can you help us out? Like send us like your banner just so that these guys know that, you know, pioneer belts supports veterans outside of the 10% discount. Um, and so I did this over and over again and then I was told to make a video. So I make this little four minute video to send to organizations. And at the same time, we made a one minute promo video to put on Instagram so that the, our gym could see what we're doing here. And it went national and I started getting a good amount of SF community members reaching out saying, this is fantastic. What can we do? And that's how I met, um, two solutions, uh, who's, uh, Brooke and he made us be able to make contact with 511 to do the podcast. And then because of him, that's how we met Brian Theobald who's the, um, the, your power athlete coach. Block one, yeah, coach. Block one coach. Yes. So that's how that all comes in. Now with stating this, I also had veterans from across the country reaching out to me saying like, Hey, this program's fantastic, but I'm in Tennessee or I'm in Wisconsin. And I'm like, okay, well let's find you a gym. So then through a lot of legwork, we got conjugate tactical who was the first one on board Kabuki strength to be part of the basic blocks of training so that if I have a gym in Tennessee, I can contact Jason over at Conjugate and be like, Hey, what gyms are certified through your program that I can send this guy to? Mm-hmm. So that if I'm sending you a guy who's got an amputation or a metal rod, I know you can train him. It's not bro science. He's not just going to get thrown into something. And at the same time, 
I made connections with some of the VA referral programs so that I can also line them up with a trauma-informed therapist so that he's got the package in Tennessee. Now, with the workouts, the group setting, it's based off of big systems. It's based off of clinical psych, trauma psych, and sports psych. And I'm not going to get too detailed on it, but it's the pretty much the basic psychological need um, overview, big cloud, in which it's defined as being able to adjust to your society and your situation, maintain integrity, and at the same time have personal growth. And the way that you do this, it's with three different factors. It's autonomy, relatedness, and competence. So with autonomy, it's the individual's choice to come and work out and put as much effort as they can to come and do therapy as active as they can at that moment. With relatedness, it's the group setting, which when they're doing the workouts within the group um, manner, whether it's one other guy or six other guys, um, there's this need of connection and belonging. This is my group. They're going to call you if you're not showing up. Sure. They're going to ask you to go have lunch afterwards because you guys are all hungry. Or you're going to share equipment. And then it's competence in which now you're mastering something that either you knew how to do or you are mastering control over your body. You are choosing to show up. You are choosing to exert energy into something. And then you're going to start seeing more muscle in your legs or less pain in your back. And instead of somebody pushing a pill on you in which they're taking away your control, they're giving you the ability to take control of the environment which then reduces the symptoms of PTSD because you have some level of knowledge of where you belong in the world. Is there, um, with, uh, I'm trying to think like in terms of like a physiological rewiring of the brain for PTSD, have they done any mapping or anything where they've gone and looked and they're like, you know, like the brain is no longer working in, in a certain way. Yes. And then when you start adding drugs and alcohol in, now all of a sudden these are like coping mechanisms or more importantly, like chemical ways to rewire. So is there like a, um, I mean, neurologically, I mean, they've proved PTSD exists mm. because I know there was a weird deal for a long time where like, oh, this is all in their head. I mean, Technically. Yeah, <laughs> literally and figuratively. Uh, but now they've said, hey, you know what? Here's like a, a rewiring of the brain. The chemistry is different. Something is different. Mm -hmm. um, is there something within the training space? That when people start training and they become fitter, stronger, whatever, like that is a, uh, you know, definitely rewiring of the brain. We've seen that too. Yes. And there is a lot of research on it. Um, I don't follow as much of that research because um, the head of uh, modern athlete strength, which is Brian, has a separate organization called RSF, who he's doing all the research to push that out to be like, this is the the evidence that shows how movement refocus or, you know, yeah. uh, exactly everything uh, rewires. rewires the brain. And I'm like, okay, great. You work on that part because that's all research, but I want to work with the person. Like I'll come and sit down. Cause I don't, I don't have time to go reading books right now. Like I, I want to work out with you. Like that's the best use of my time. So that's what he's, I'm waiting on him to give me that. Uh, is there also, um, I mean, uh, like, you know, I mean, geez, if you're reading statistics on depression, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I mean, people use PTSD, but like, to me, it feels like, a you know, like clinical depression in a way, like this is who I was. 
and this is who I am now. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I have a hard time marrying that. I mean, I, I do it too. I mean, especially for me as an ex-NFL player, I remember who I was in my 20s and even in my early 30s. And now here I am in my 40s. Uh, and there's this like constant fight and this like reevaluation of like, you know, we were at Summer Strong and like I saw some dudes banging some heavy weights and those were weights I would have handled easily, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, but now I don't have that same training time or necessarily like injury, whatever. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of an interesting piece to look at it and be like, ah, shit, mm-hmm. you know, if only. And uh, there's there's a kind of like an interesting feel like that. And I know in my head, um, you know, and I do it. And I can hear in my head and I know exactly what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And uh, I always wonder, like, you know, um, because I'm, you know, read and do a whole bunch of other stuff. I'm aware of what's going on. Try to be like highly aware of what's going on in my own mind. Whereas I see other people just I feel depressed on who I can't or I'm not able to be who I want to be. Mm-hmm. And so that it's mourning. You have to mourn the fact that you're no longer that 20 year old. You had that sucks. Time. How do we get that back? Yeah. Oh, if, I, if I knew that, I'd be I, 22. Yeah. So. <laughs> uh, dude, I'd be 26 for the rest of my life. If I could just freeze it. Like I always think like whenever you see those vampires, they're like, what age? I'll be like 26. I'll take that one for the rest of my life and I'll fight <laughs> to the very end. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Same. Same here. No, I'd be 24 though. Just out of grad school. Um, but it's mourning. It's not being able to uh, mourn the loss of what you had once. And once you're able to, it's really nice because then you're happy for the 20-year-old that's doing it. And you're like, fucking rock it. Rock that crop, crop top. Well, like, well we see this thing. all the time where guys will be like, oh, uh, like all 40-year-old dudes be like, I'm in the best shape of my life. And I'm always like, that kicks ass. But how terrible shape are you in in your 20s? <laughs> if you can say that in your mid-40s, because I mean, shit, dude. I, I like, I mean, I look at fucking, so like I was like a superhero when I played. And uh, I mean, like to attain that in my 40s, I'm like, fuck. Like, and I don't mean to say that to like, mm. you know kick anybody in the teeth but i'm always like damn uh you missed the boat i'm uh, thank god you got to the party you got here a little bit late but it was a kick-ass party 20 years ago well, well on the morning and i mean you're you're still giving back for the dudes that are in that phase of their life and putting them in the best track to sure. be strong and kick ass in the same respect like older military guys that are no longer capable of serving in the field find their ways to leadership positions sure. and still hold the younger guys to a, a higher standard. But when you've, when there's been so much physicality with your job, you know, within the military stuff that like, I know the guys that I've, uh, that I've met who are older that are either through injury or not physically as fit as they used to. There's definitely like, I'm like kind of a little bit of melancholy and I always observe it. And I've dude, I've seen it for years where like, if we could somehow, Give them back. And that was a big thing with any of the guys that we worked with post. I'm like, dude, if we can just give you back a glimpse of what you had, like there's so much connection. I think I'm, I'm never going to say that people don't talk about it, but it is. But like there is the age old, like feel good, you know, look good, feel good. Whereas like, you know, if you can look in their mirror and still feel pretty good about who you are, there's it's a lot easier to put on whatever you have to do to go out and, you know, go out and fight the world. Yeah. And that, I mean, they still have the capability and capacity to do skill work like shooting. So there maybe I mean I dude I it's I, not necessarily to uh, the the uh, uh the intensity, but it's still a point of mastery that they uh, can attain. A guy I met recently, um he's probably in his early fifties, um, overweight, and he was telling me he's like, I was a soldier, uh, I was in the Navy, I was super fit, and went through this whole thing. And every time I see him, he brings it up. Mm-hmm. And it's like like almost like trying to qualify and I want to, you know, and I'm like, dude, there's the best version of you at this age is still out there. Like you're not going to do it by not going to the gym, not training, doing all these things. Like you don't have to be like you were when you were 18, 
but like you can't just like sail that away and be like, well, uh, you know, this is who I am today. Like I, I look at it like uh, you remember Stallone and Cliffhanger. Where he's Do like, I ever? It's one of the best movies ever. <laughs> but you remember he's like hanging on with like one finger. He's like just hanging around. I always thought I always joked that if like as long as you, know, you saw that, um, good things went a little bit. Um, if you can take that same approach of like Stallone and Cliffhanger, where you're still got a finger in the fight, like still finger hanging on that ledge, and you're always going to you know fight for that for that one hold. And it, it's interesting, especially when people find out who we are, or what they do, or people come talk to me. I mean, the, the amount of people that walk up to me and want to talk to me about lifting weights and training. Um, when I was younger, it was always about, oh, did you play in the NFL? People don't ask me that question anymore because I'm old. Um, but uh, they'll always want to talk to me about training and lifting weights and this. And they'll always give me these stories about like, oh, I used to do you know this. And I'm always like, well, what happened? Like, why can't you do it today? I mean, you can't do, maybe do it to the level you were, but like there's some version of you. It's a better version of yourself that doesn't have to have you tell me war stories from 20 years ago. Well, and they can show a model for the future where they got kids or, I mean, coaching in their community. Plenty of opportunities. <laughs> I mean, some we, bad coaches out there. Well, I mean, um, so a, a big thing I've always been a huge proponent on is um, this idea of like uh, being a renaissance man. So I've always tried to like, uh, you know, find new tasks, learn new skills, um, you know, find something that looks unattainable and rebuild it. And like there's this idea of constant evolution, like uh, you can always continue to learn new skills. And uh, when I was at, at uh, Summer Strong, uh, we were sitting there, people were like, you know, well, what do you do now? And I kind of explained it to them. And we were talking about the hobbies, whether it be welding, fabrication, you know, dirt work, this. I mean, the, and these guys were like, like, where'd you pick up these skills? I'm like, because I'm not afraid to fail at anything. And if I have a question, there's a YouTube video. <laughs> and I have uh, um, an intense, uh, like, desire for mastery. Like, I, you know, like, um, people ask me, how'd you learn to weld? I'm like, just got some trucks, got some welders, just started basically doing it and it was terrible until it got good and i did not have an ego in things where it's like you know what i know it's not going to be good today but like there's this like process of like mastery that i've become obsessed with and even to the point where like there's things i want to start doing but i take a little bit of a deep breath and i'm like i don't know if i can add another thing onto my plate like i'm supposed to drive up i mean um, um you know craig wants me to go up and do uh start training and doing uh jujitsu and, and more fight stuff I'm like, I don't know how I add more, more to our plate, but there's another thing I want to get better at. So it's, um, it's pretty interesting when I meet people um, where they're just kind of okay with where they're at. I have this constant feel that there's a whole set of skills and tasks and things that I don't know that I want to learn. So that's the growth mindset. You're yeah. never done. You're always wanting to uh, make yourself better. So when these guys are coming up and saying, hey, when I was in the Navy and I was, you know, I had this job and I lifted all this weight, what they're really saying is they had a community, they had connection, they had, they knew who they were. Now they're 50 years old, overweight, they don't know who they are and they're lost. And they don't like how they look in the mirror and they're tired. And when you're working with them and you're able to say like, okay, well, what have you done? Maybe when you were 20, you could, you know, destroy those weights. Now you're a 40 year old man with this business, this business, this thing, this following, this level of um, reach that you've done in the past 20 years. That adds on top of I've been able to move these weights. That's it. That's all I've done. I've had a straight line of just being able to move these weights and I'm freaking in the best shape of my life at 50. But that's it. There's nothing else around. And so you're able to help them refocus and you're like, all right, John, like, what have you done? What are you doing right now? How big is your life versus how big it was when you were 20? Well, I had a pretty big life. I played in the NFL. I was really strong. Oh, I mean, all I did was train because okay. it, it, that means what I got paid to do. So you trained and you played in FNL. Yeah. Yeah. 
Rode motorcycles and cross country. Yeah, I rode motorcycles. Yeah, I mean, I, IHOP. Yeah, I fucking. Oh, I, I, I heard that. I, I heard the IHOP stories in that. Yeah, so I, yeah, adventures. So, yeah, so now I, I was. Um, uh, I've always had this. So, man, this is so strange. But um, I read. So I, I, I got three kids, and so um, my one daughter, or uh, all my kids are real smart. Uh, my one daughter's real smart and curious. So I read her all the creation myths. So, um, like all the Norse mythology, whether it be, uh, Christianity, like everything, you know, um, you know, obviously the old Testament is all the same, but like the creation stuff. And so we went through and I asked her which one sounded the coolest. And she thought that like Odin and the Norse mythology was by far the coolest, but there was a whole deal with the Vikings where the idea of like, you know, dying as an old man, uh, you know, warm in your bed was, you know, never a chance to get to Valhalla, mm-hmm. you know, which whether, you know, every religion has this place. Where, you know, you become an equal with the gods, whether it be heaven, whether it be this. I mean, everybody has their version. And the Vikings were just, you know, a big table where they got to drink and feast and fight, which is what their culture was based around. Mm -hmm. So this idea that everything you do is, and I mean, Christianity, and and what's wild too, and this is um, her observation. She's like, it's almost like Christianity just kind of absorbed everything. I'm like, 100% they did. It was a pagan religion. Uh, it was tearing apart the Holy Roman emperor or uh, empire. Um, you know, the emperor becomes a Christian on his deathbed and they just absorbed all these other pagan holidays because they wanted to just a, an easy transition. Uh, and so as we got through this, um, you know, and I think I've always taken this idea of like, you know, like there has to be some form of an adventure that at some point you're going to have to sit down, whether it be at the end of your days or whatever, and you're going to have to, um, man, there was a movie called uh, defend your life. And it was an old movie where this guy, like, basically as a guy passes away. Um, and, I, dude, uh, I can't remember who it is, but it was a movie in the 80s, uh, 90s, but it was called, like, Defending Your Life. And so what happens is, is you die, you go to purgatory, and you get a lawyer. And they basically rewatch your entire life, and you make a case for whether or not you get to get on one bus, which is to go to heaven, or you get on another bus where you get to go do it again. Oh. And, like, I mean, even in, like, Al Brooks. Al Brooks. Uh, there was even, and if you go back to as far as like 14th century Christianity, uh, they had reincarnation in Christianity. Mm-hmm. And then the Catholic church realized like if you sell people that they get to come back and do it again, it's a lot harder to sell salvation. So they changed that piece because, you know, the, the, because yeah, the Roman Catholic church had a lock on, uh, salvation. Mm-hmm. You know, if you get this money, we're going to send you to heaven. It's uh, just a financial decision. You can't say, Hey, you know what? If you fuck up, you get to do it again. That's not how they do it. Oh yeah. So, I mean, if you look at the financial decisions in terms of skinning uh, what we understand as modern religion in benefit of, you know, these different entities, it's kind of scary. But in that piece, I always, I saw that movie and I remember as a kid feeling like whether it be, you know, Odin's Feast or Christianity, whatever, at some point you're going to have to atone. And that's the whole St. Peter thing, right? At some point. And I wanted to be able to sit back and look at this, uh, you know, reliving in my life and been like, if I can live his life, you know, like he didn't live with fear. There was nothing where, you know, uh, like I always viewed fear as like people um, don't do the things they want because it almost act within fear of like, Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do this because I'm fearful of this. I never wanted fear to be my driving factor. Mm-hmm. I always wanted, you know, adventure and to have fun and to like live a, a really exciting life. And I was granted an amazing one by getting a chance to play in the NFL for a decade. So I had access uh, to be able to do fun shit and have adventures. Mm-hmm. And whether it be, you know, we were in California. We decided to come out here to Texas and build everything you've seen. I mean, you know, this is a constant state in, in motion, but everything you've seen built has been, I mean, from this podcast room to what you see in here to the gym. I mean, that's all by by either my hands or, or mm-hmm. these guys' hands. Yeah. So uh, that piece of like, have you have you lived a life that was well-received 
did you live, uh, you know, without fear? I mean, didn't make decisions. I mean, um, you know, have you raised, I mean, have, have you done it the way you should have has always been very important to me. Mm-hmm. And, uh, what's amazing is when I start telling people a little bit about this, like you'd see their heads get big, I'm like, holy shit, you bit off a lot. And I'm like, I hope I'd fucking choke on it. Mm-hmm. You know, I want to drink from water hose. I want to try to eat and, you know, take the biggest bites I can and see if I choke on it. It's always been that way. Mm-hmm. So, um, when I hear people, especially tell me all the things they can't do, I'm like, why can't you do this? Mm-hmm. I'm like, what are you afraid of failure? Okay. Well, fuck it. Everybody sucks. And I tell my kids this. Um, why would you ever be fearful to start something? Everybody sucks. Like, uh, there's this idea that you have to be good at everything or somebody's going to make fun of you. Like, look how many people don't go to the gym because they're nervous or somebody's going to make fun of them. Everybody has their first day. Mm-hmm. And it's, it blows me away when you see things on like social media where somebody like, oh, this idiot are here. Oh. Fuck. It drives me absolutely fucking crazy. I want to go through and like fucking basically be the punisher for those individuals. Uh, because everybody needs their first day. Like everybody gets a chance to be a white belt at everything. Mm -hmm. And the fact that we are so quick to cast stones at people for it fucking drives me absolutely crazy. And and the reason in power athlete where we have training programs like bedrocks, our initial deal, the reason we start everybody there is because that's your first stop on the bus. But you got to get on the bus and even get there to get the first stop. Start there. Once that fails, we'll help you along. Mm -hmm. And there's no shame in being a beginner. And I remember people will always take, uh, take a little bit of like chip or they'll take a little bit of like, um, what's the word? Like, um, like they'll be offended a little bit when I tell them like, Hey, are you new or are you beginner? I'm like, why is it a bad thing? Mm-hmm. Oh no, I've been doing this and I always want to call. I'm like, I don't give a shit. Saving right? face. Yeah. And I'm, I'm like, for what, for who, mm-hmm. you know? And I, and I realize it's ego. I mean, if you look at the Greeks, you know, with ego, the idea of, you know, developing this id and all the you know psychological stuff. I mean, you know, it's there to protect you. Fuck all that. Mm, the Freudian stuff. Yeah, you know, the Freudian stuff. Well, I, I was a rhetoric major in college. So I was like English philosophy. So I had to read all this uh, uh, very interesting uh, philosophy, but also a bunch of the psychology stuff. And I, I just thought it was so, I mean, it was an interesting way in terms of viewing people. But at the end of the day. Oh, Freudian um, stuff. Have you, if you ever go into it real deep, gets really messy and then he bounces back. So have you read into it? Uh, a little bit, but I was a big Nietzsche fan. Oh, I love you. So I, um, I've always been an existentialist mm-hmm. that I believe that, um, you know, with Dostoevsky, that this idea of, um, you know, certain, you know, which was uh, Dostoevsky's crime and punishment, the uh, Raskolnikov Superman theory. Mm-hmm. I've always believed that there are certain people that are destined more for greatness. Now, his views, you know, the way he proved it was trying to kill a woman, which is kind of twisted and all that. But like I, I, I like that's an interesting piece. Like, uh, does everybody have greatness in them? And that's another interesting question. Mm-hmm. Are there great people or is it merely ind- normal individuals that are put in extraordinary situations that allow for greatness? Which I think is the latter because we heard Kyle Carpenter speak at Summerstrong two years ago, which to this day is the best speech I've ever heard. Uh, do you know who he was a um, um, Congressional Medal of Honor winner? Mm-hmm. And his talk was, um, he basically the moment that, you know, he's on a rooftop grenade lands, he dives on it to save his friends. Uh, it goes off and he starts the story from as he's laying there after the grenade goes off and then gives his entire like hero's journey coming back to this moment where he's standing there. I, I like at that point, you're like, dude, this might be, well, I, I had two realizations. One, I realized, uh, that this is who we send to war, mm-hmm. um, really nice kids who um, aren't married, you know, that are sitting there with their mom. I mean, like, you know, that, that was gripping to me. You know, we always think of like, you know, whenever you see like, you think of the Vikings, it's always these old men with beards with axes that are going off. No, it's young men. Mm -hmm. And, um, and then, you know, here's the situation. And, uh, 
you know, this kid has this and, and he's gotten back to this point. So, I mean, just the, you know, the, uh, like the grit of the eternal soul that he, it would have been so easy just to die in that moment. But this kid had so much to live for because he had so much in front of him. So it's one of the most amazing talks I've ever heard. Well, I wish I would have listened to that before coming in here. Yeah, it was great. But I'm, I'm, I'm always fascinated by great men. I'm always in, uh, in, uh, fascinated by people that have fought from like, you know, like the bottom of this thing. I mean, this kid was dead and he fought back to where he was. And I remember in his talk, he, uh, he was trying to eat cereal. And he couldn't because he didn't have hands. Mm. And uh, they reconstructed his hands. And his mom came down. She's going to help you. And he's like, Mom, who's ever going to love me? And, uh, and like, as a parent, you know, everybody wanted to go hug that kid. Mm. You know, because, I mean, it's like, you know, yeah, like, you're messed up. But, like, you know, like, the, the strength of the human soul mm. and what this kid has gone through. And the fact that he's standing up and giving this talk, man, it was, it, it's, I, I think about it more than I should. Yeah, it was interesting because the moment, the decision that he made that made him a hero, he couldn't remember it. So you had all these individuals coming up and you know praising his actions, and he doesn't remember. He just remembers Blank. after the moment. Yeah. So his as people were identifying him, he wasn't able to connect to that identity and had to re-find himself. Now as a book, and uh, is uh, and is so humble about it. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe because he didn't remember it, he just knew the fight that he had after the moment. But then you th- you know you look back almost like somebody telling you stories. I think the way he put it, when people were telling him about his actions that were there and who he saved, man, like that to me, um, like um, um, I was reading, uh, you know, like I'm a big fan of historical biographies. Um, so I read, uh, you know, I, I think Abe Lincoln is such an interesting individual, and uh, you know, it, for so many reasons, you know, people have talked about him being this incredible president. And I'm like, what if he was just not? At this time in the country, which is one of the most pivotal points in our country within the Civil War, the Emancipation Proclamation, look at all the things that he was in the piece of that we've looked at since many years. Mm-hmm. So it goes back to like history ends up judging great men. And he lost every election. And he lost every election. Until the presidency. Well, what's amazing, too, about him, and this is something that I've always respected, he would every night when he would leave. So um, the White House had a open door policy. You could walk in and he would sit at his desk and anybody could walk in and talk to him. Mm-hmm. Um, he would leave there. And he would go down to like the local bar and he'd put his back to the fire and he would tell stories. And um, I think it was because uh, Luke took a shot at me once and he's like, all you do on all, fucking, all you do on the podcast is tell stories. All right. And he was, take, he was taking a shot at me and I was like, what are you talking about? That is by far the most incredible form of teaching I've ever met. Like that is like the it's best. the origin form. of teaching. It is the origin of teaching. The Odyssey. Storytelling, <laughs> right. Like, uh, like whether it be um, and retelling other people's stories fucking sucks. Have you ever been around anybody that tells somebody else's stories? I tell yours all the time. <laughs> he does. I'm 10-year well, NFL I, I know, but uh, I've had people... 100 career stars, 10 playoff appearances. <laughs> yeah, but you tell it fucking sarcastically, you motherfucker. Uh, but like the, the idea of like... T- I mean, the sad part is, is man... So my dad, um, my dad who, who's been on this podcast has since passed away. But when I went to the NFL, my dad, uh, my dad was a cri- um, criminal defense attorney. It's a little flaccid, don't worry. That's Texas. Uh, so my dad um, was buddies with Bugliosi, mm-hmm. who was the DA that prosecuted Charlie Manson. Oh, mm-hmm. So my dad was like, dude, Bugliosi was so sharp. What he did is every night as he was driving home, he had a recorder in his car and he would just dictate what happened on that day. And that ended up becoming the book Helter Skelter and the whole deal. So my dad's deal was like, why don't you get a, a tape recorder and just record everything that happens every day that you're in the NFL? And I was like, oh, that's a terrible fucking idea. <laughs> and I'm so fucking mad I didn't do it. Mm-hmm. I wish I'd had a blog 
Uh, I remember he's like, you should have a website. I'm like, what would I do? All I had to do is be like, push your workouts. Just write what happens. Like keep a chronicle of your life because you're living in such a cool time. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, social media has done an incredible job for I me. Mean, people have weaponized it in weird ways. But this idea, I mean, even my iPhone has turned into this like idea of story key of telling where like you take pictures and you can kind of go back and do it. There's so much information that was lost just because I didn't have a way to record it. Mm-hmm. Or at least I didn't have somebody that explained it to me that way. So I sometimes worry with the stories I tell. If I don't tell them, I'm going to forget them. But then I remember we got this fucking podcast with 600 episodes that's chock full of stories. And then text to this day, I'll tell them stuff. He's like, you haven't told me this one. I'm like, I've never told you this one? No. Yeah, there's new but stories that pop out. I do think, <laughs> and what I really liked about the Abe Lincoln stuff mm-hmm. was he was an incredible storyteller. And that's why I think people resonated with him because he was able to connect through this and he was able to take people on, on journeys. What? Okay, so let me interrupt. Sorry. Um, there's a lot of service members who are heroes who are quietly living their lives that nobody knows about. They are not writing books and they're not doing podcasts and they're not doing runs because they're just trying to survive day by day. And you may see their lives, and and I'm speaking in general, as being stagnant, but their cup is so full of what they've been through that adding one more thing to improve what we see as their quality of life is just going to tip them over. And those are the individuals that are lost because they're not being loud because they're not saying help me. They're just in the background and the stuff that they've done, nobody knows about. There's nobody there to tell their story or advocate for them. And they might've done just as much as the guy on TV, but those are the ones that because no one's paying attention to them or following up with them. That's where the system's broke because we only pay attention to the guy that's super loud or, or the people that are advocating for the guy that's super loud. And those are the guys that the VA doesn't reach or that these larger programs don't see because they're not asking for help. And the way that we help them on platforms like yours is that we say it. And then now whoever's listening to this podcast is like, hey, there's this other resource out there available. And then they tell their friend and then the friend tells the sister and then the sister's dating the guy. And so then they talk to each other and like, hey, there's this other program out there. Why don't you look into it? Or I've gotten emails from people saying like, Hey, I sent this over to my wife or my wife won't stop sending this to me. Like, can you help me out here? And so as long as the information is out there, if one veteran tells the other veteran, it's more likely to get picked up than by them hearing it from us because we have no credibility in the world unless the veterans speak to each other about this program. And they are heroes and they have done amazing things that we just don't know about because they don't want to talk about. Sure. You know, and the guys that did sacrifice so much that are speaking about it, they have the platform to be able to help more. So if they're connecting and being like, hey, look at all these other resources, that's our way in to be able to help them to reduce the level of suicides that are in the country that everyone's like, well, what happened? I was like, I don't know. It's just, he wasn't saying anything. What, um, what is uh, the statistic on suicide? I mean, you see that like 28 a day. You know, I watch people like, you know, Kyle Turley will do 28 push-ups. And, and he's like, you know, 28 veterans a day kill themselves. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I like don't know where those numbers come from. And yeah, so, those are all wonky. It went from 16 to 22. And then it was debated as in 22 was just because it was catchy to say 22 to 28. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And well, then, it, like, so uh, I always... Uh, 
get a little nervous when people just throw out these numbers that become like somehow solidified. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it's, um, uh, you know, I mean, I, obviously you're bringing in awareness, but you know, I mean, uh, I appreciate you doing some pushups, but at the end of the day, yes. Oh, uh, that's a pet peeve. That's yeah. Such a pet peeve. Well, it's, it's, um, it's, it's a virtue signaling, mm -hmm. um, where it's like, you know, uh, I'm going to somehow, you know, do these because I'm going to, you know, but like, I, you know, mm -hmm. yeah. I, yeah. So that's, Ooh, see now I'm, so uh, this is the 5K mental health awareness for PTSD or depression. So they have their five-minute spiel where they stand there and they say, thank you very much. We'll do this. Um, thank you very much for coming. Here's the fire department. Let's say the Pledge of Allegiance. Everybody, thank you. Um, all of the, uh, the fees for coming to the race are going to go towards mental health awareness and, of course, to pay off the people that we you know, invited here. And go take a run. So everybody gets their shirts and they pay $25 for the shirts and they go and they run and they finish the run and then they go buy things from the vendors and they go home. They're like, yes, I have done something. Where, where is that going? Where is the mental health awareness aspect of it? Did you teach what depression is? Did you hand out uh, referrals? Did you provide any kind of psychoeducation to anybody at this time? Now, the funds, where did those funds go? They went to awareness. What is it? Did you provide? That's a magical hole that they throw money in the ground because we know because we have a cancer charity, Wade's Army, and uh, the probably uh, the the most uh, what's the the only thing I could think of is uh, uh, my kids go ew that that say, face and that sound they make is mm -hmm. what reminds me when I hear oh uh, mental health awareness or cancer ew. It just, it's because it's this hole that they throw money into that makes you feel better. Yes. But at the end of the day, there's no oversight because is that money actually going? Like, are you being subsidized by it and you're helping individuals? No. So when you're doing these, if you're doing some, some legwork as to where the money's going, you can see if it's actually going to help individuals that have depression. Like with the cancer program, like there are dedicated channels that are paying for treatment, that are paying for research. You can see where that's going. But the mental health awareness is very soft. Well, what is mental health awareness? Exactly. It's supposed to be psychoeducation. I am informing you of what depression is. What are the symptoms of depression? How do I identify that in yourself and in others so that you can be like, this isn't a normal feeling in my body. I should go talk to somebody. I should go get on medications because this is how it's affecting my children. This is how it's affecting my diet. And then why am I depressed? What's happening? Oh, it's because my uh, husband's a drunk and I'm scared of him. Well, why is your husband a drunk? Because he went to war. Okay, so what happened in war that made him, a, you know, an asshole who's now drinking? Let's address those issues, not awareness of the issues. And so with, I think a lot of the nonprofits or the mental health programs start off really well, altruistic, um, and then it gets lost in money. And so once again, I'm not preaching for myself, but when... I started mine because I didn't like how messy it got. Like I would reach out to these larger organizations. They're like, we're here for veterans. I was like, okay, I need help because my veteran can't pay. They're like, oh yeah, we, we, we won't give to you because we have our own programs. I was like, okay, but he still can't pay. They're like we'll figure it out. So I was like, okay, fine. You don't have to pay. Just get in here. Just don't They're kill like, yourself. We have an expensive board of individuals that have to make big salaries. Yes. Well, I mean. You I'm, said it. I, no, I didn't. No, I, I did. Uh, dude, wasn't that Wounded Warriors? Where the dude showed up on a fucking white horse at their, you know, uh, ten thousand a night gala, and you know this. I mean, the like it's it's fucking. Uh, we've seen they this had one. to pay the NFL to honor soldiers before the games. Yeah, 
So that did you know that that um, yes, so, I know there's been controversy, and I also know that they've so got some good programs. When we were at the end, so when I was an NFL player, we um, we never came out for the national anthem. So that was a big deal, right? So you remember like the whole kneeling deal? Yes. Um, we were always in the locker rooms. They would do the national anthem. We would hear the planes fly over and then we came out. Mm-hmm. Uh, it wasn't until after September 11th when, you know, we, you know, America's game and this where the uh, U.S. military paid the NFL an exorbitant amount of money to bring the players out and hold the flag and shake it and do all that. So us coming out um, isn't at all. So like the whole kneeling, this, I'm like, just go back to how it was. To stay in the fucking locker room before the for the national anthem. We were never out there. Okay. So the whole deal where it's like presented to America's game and the national, you know, this and they brought out the color, all of that was paid for by the US military to the NFL. The NFL doesn't lift a fucking finger uh, unless they get paid and somehow honoring America, the way they honor America is fucking with uh getting paid. And so, so then again, is it done really out of respect for the soldiers who have sacrificed everything no. for this country? For you to go on whatever platform, be like, yes, you know, I honor America, or is it because you got paid your five dollars yeah. and then now you honor America? When the guy that went out and sacrificed everything, he's like, you know, I just, I just want to just come back and be healthy. Well, and everyone's like, well, then it's because you're not working hard enough. Well, I mean, uh, you being lazy. We saw this with the cancer charity, where all of a sudden uh, that first year when we raised money for for Wade's, um, you know, yeah. so. Uh, the, the way this charity started was um, Wade DeBrun, the little boy who's named after he passed away from neuroblastoma. I got when he was like 18 months, passed away at two. And then a year, um, and this whole thing was going down. So uh, Wade's mom and dad, uh, Wade's mom and my wife were friends in high school. So while this was going on, this fight with Wade's, my wife's seeing this play out on Facebook. Um, Wade was a twin. My wife was pregnant with twins when this was going down. So we have twins and then he passes away, leaving his twin behind. And we have our, our twins like shortly thereafter. Uh, so a year had gone by. And my wife says, there's something we can do to help them. And I was like, yeah, why don't we like design an awful T-shirt? We'll pack them up. We'll sell them and we'll see if we can raise some money. So I designed a T-shirt. We raised like 18 grand that first year. And then we wrote him a check. Um, then we started raising more money and kept writing checks to these different, uh, you know, kids, you know, solving kids cancer and all these different organizations uh, the problem was when I asked where the money was going, Hey, where's you know, what's the oversight? Where's the money going this? They were like, well, it's just going into a general fund that can pay for, you know, secretaries and this. And I was like, I, you know, if I'm going to write you a $50,000 check, I want to know where my money's going. Mm-hmm. And they couldn't, all these different charities couldn't give us any oversight. So at that point I was like, fuck all this, start our own charity. So we started Wade's army mm-hmm. and then we fundraised for that. And we know exactly where the money goes. Uh, we we use it for, um, you know, we're approached by different people for grants and funds. Individuals that are fighting neuroblastoma that go to these other charities and can't get any money because they have to live in a van and this and this. We They come to us and we'll write them a check. Mm-hmm. Hey, I need to pay bills. How much? And like, I remember we, we get these grant proposals from us and I'm always like, $2,500. Do you need more? And they're like, no, I just need X amount of dollars to pay our rent. And I'm like, like can we give you more? Like, I'll give you five, like, and they're, they're always, they're always like, I only need money to pay my rent. We're fine. And, um, and so the problem is, is that, uh, a lot of these charities don't have avenues for that, but because there's, we're so small, but we we're powerful in that we have this army of like, you know, within power athlete and different friends of our community that are just incredible for our fundraising deal, but it allows us to be really agile and to help people in need. Well, Sam used the word resource. Versus just awareness. Mm-hmm. And that's that's something that we provide. Uh, Wade's Army provides resource. And how people find us 
is that kick-ass t-shirts and, and also like the charity uh the uh the different social workers that work with people they'll be like hey there's this charity you can reach out to and um the the hardest part and this is probably like in the veteran thing um like and every year i go through this because um we have these different individuals what we call our wage warriors and we lose them yeah and like these kids who we've like lived and died with, I mean, like what I mean, literally, yeah. um, it's it like, it like as a parent, like you're crushed and you're like, how much, how and I, and I, th- I think I, I said recently in one of our deals, I'm like how much money just to save one kid? Like, what if we raise like a hundred million dollars and we dump every nickel that we have into anything we can to save just one. And then we build a model off of saving that one. And cause you know, we've saved some and we, we've lost a lot. And I wonder what like the, you know, with the veteran stuff, um, you know, they like suicide's so weird to me because uh, I can't imagine feeling that there was no other option. And like, you, like, like when you, when you dig into it, like, I don't want my family to go through this anymore. There's no other option. Like, this is the you know suicide solution, which was what uh, um, what was the song? Wasn't that um, that was a song that the kid killed himself and then they sued? Was it Ozzy? Uh, Black Sabbath, Blink One Eighty Two. No, it's called Suicide Solution. But that was the deal. You remember the parents? Ozzy, yeah. yeah, Ozzy got sued because a kid killed himself listening to Suicide Solution. But like, I, mean, I like, and, and this is the deal with like the hopelessness and and like the suicide thing is just so like I have such a hard time wrapping my head around it because like to feel that alone that there's no other solution other than to take my life mm-hmm. when there's so many resources and there's other people out there. But then regardless of what you offer them, unless they want to take it, this is their only option. Mm-hmm. And then there's this idea of like, well, they're a coward. You know, if, if they take that solution and that always feels so dirty to me too. And I'm like, yeah, I don't think anybody goes into this lightly to feel that like, if I just take myself out of society, the world would be a better place. Well, it's like, easier to demonize them than it is to identify what was actually happening. If you call somebody a coward, then it's not on you. It's not like I could have done something more. And it's not a rational response to a rational human being. It, it's somebody that was hurt. And that was their response. So you can't expect something from somebody who's not capable of having it at that moment. Well, I mean, think about like, um, uh, like the one that, that absolutely blew my mind. Uh, I read a couple of years ago where a kid was getting, uh, this girl was getting bullied online mm-hmm. and she ended up killing herself by like 13 years old. First of all, the fact that you're 13 and you think that there's no solution mm-hmm. and it's online, which at that point for me, I would just fucking axe the router and move someplace with no cell service. Mm-hmm. Oh, you're getting harassed on, right? Great. We're going to Alaska. There's no cell service. I mean, like do whatever you got to do to save your kid. Yeah. Um, but like that feeling of like hopelessness. And so when we get into this, I mean, um, like, you know, what's the solution? How do we, you know, and then like, you know, you see people doing 20 some pushups, but every time I see it, I'm like, okay, you're doing these pushups, but like, how is that directly helping these individuals? It's not, it's not. So, so how do we help these individuals? How do you get to the point in which, again, generalizing, in which the option for the person is to commit suicide? Uh, first and foremost, the person has no purpose in life. There's no mission. There's no sense, sense of identity, no motivation. They have lost everything. And it doesn't even hurt anymore. It, it, it's so numb that the response is like, it, it's just an inconvenience. Or I'm just waiting it out. So might as well get it over with now. I'm not saying this is across the board, but in general, I think that the 22 push-ups is an attempt to build a community of being like, hey, you're not alone. If you feel shitty, just know that I'm doing 22 push-ups for you because I know you're feeling shitty, even though 
I don't know you, but is it actually doing something? No, because that person can't hear you anymore. So it's up to that person's social network to identify when this person starts to isolate, because that's the first sign is when they stop talking, when they start putting on the face, when they start to prefer to be alone, then that's when you intervene. And that doesn't mean invite them to a party or have them go out to movie theaters with you. It's just make contact. Let them know that they have value in your life. And that's how you get them. And then you do the equestrian or you do like there's a video game organization that connects guys through video game. So they're on 24-7 and they do the Twitch thing. I don't play video games. Um which is nothing bad. You can play video games if you want. It's just not my thing. I, I don't play video games either, but I'm not opposed to them either. Yeah, I mean, well, I, like I, I like to play them when I was a kid. I just don't know if I have the time to necessarily invest in them. Like, well, if I've got two hours, I'm going to go surfing. I'm not going to go play video games. But either way, but the you know the system set up so that. What if you played surfing video games? Then I would be very very ill because I can't go <laughs> <laughs> surfing. <laughs> so, um, so because it's twenty four seven. If that guy's feeling down, he can log in, play a video game, and then be in contact with somebody and goof off with that person and just kind of feel a little bit better because it, there's connection with so many people, which is wonderful. Is is there um, – um, and uh, this is something that I'm, I'm – dude, I'm sure that uh, you, know, you, you see it listed constantly, especially within this kind of digital world we live in. But I know for me personally, uh, like if I'm ever feeling like a little bit of anxiety or a little overwhelmed on certain things – uh, I find that if I just go out and like where we live here, if I mm-hmm. just walk down to the creek and just like hang out there, like and don't hear anything, and what sucks is they're doing construction, so I can hear kum, 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 kum. Yeah. it's fucking awful. But before those assholes started building that road over there, mm-hmm. like just birds, and uh, like we are, uh, um, it's pretty wild. We're a bird sanctuary, which is a trip. Like there's thousands of birds that show up here, mm-hmm. and like to hear them, and like just to be out there and like hear the water run down. Like there's something so relaxing for me personally, mm-hmm. like sitting there watching the oceans break at the beach, um, which is funny because I grew up in California and love the ocean. And now we live here. Uh, when we were just in North Carolina at the beach. It was like so relaxing. Mm-hmm. Um, like I'm just going to sit out here and listen. Um, like, is there something within that, like nature within therapy and that where you're like, you just need to get out mm-hmm. and like go somewhere mm-hmm. and like, you know, sit without technology in this. And That's know. actually getting debated right now as to whether or not to add that fourth component to the uh, basic psychological needs theory is to add that component of nature because not all of us live by the beach and get to drive into the beach or have a creek with a wildlife sanctuary on our property, but you can go outside. You can touch something that's nature. You can have plants in your house, but just acknowledging like I am actively doing this because I know it makes me feel better. So the intentionality of, doing it is what's the healing part of it same thing for working out like when you're intentionally lifting to engage that muscle to then form muscle memory it's a much stronger um, way of approaching it than i'm just going to lift something heavy and hope i don't hurt myself so it's it's the mindset of how you approach the entire aspect of your life to be able to reach that higher quality of satisfaction well I mean, can animals and that companionship play a role in suicide prevention? Uh, Equestrian therapy has been the most effective um, therapy in regards to animals. Wow. Um, 
It's got to do with the response to people, uh, the training and the commitment for the individual to come and work with the horse, which is different than working with dogs because dogs aren't necessarily always trained. Um, it's a lot easier to get a dog and there's not that commitment to having to go out and actively participate in activity. You get a dog, great. It's a therapy dog or it's an emotional support dog. And are they providing a, a something positive? Yes, absolutely. But it's not as intentional as having to go to a place with a horse. Yes. Well, the, the other one too with horses are a little different. Um, so horses don't have big brains. They're not real smart. I know this is just like, like in terms of like the intelligence horses lack uh, like a lot of like mental capacity, but they, what they make up for is an emotional capacity. Um, so, uh, RPR, Caltheats, um, you know, Douglas heel, uh, emotion is tied to fascia. And if you were to strip away the skin on a horse, their entire body is fascia. So the idea of emotional intelligence is connected to fascia. And that's where like the RPR stuff that they do is like a myofascial release, like fixes all this dysfunction. I don't know if you're familiar with yeah. it. It's, it's incredible. I do it uh, morning and night. Mm. Um, I've done it on my kids. We do it all like I, to the point where I can tell you if I haven't done RPR for the day, like whether it be training or everything, it just makes everything better. But I know within the horses that the fascia is tied up and I know that like they're extremely emotionally intelligent. Like if you come over, like they are, uh, just and then I I think they have a very interesting observation in terms of if people are sad or what I mean they they just feed off of emotion I know because my wife and my daughter ride horses um, in shows like the hunter jumper stuff mm-hmm. and my wife's pretty interesting to see she's like I can tell when these horses get really stressed and it's usually as related to the rider so if the the rider is stressed the horse is really stressed to the point where one of the um, the little girl or one of my daughter's friends. Uh, super stressed out little girl. Her horse now has developed ulcers and can't oh jump anymore. Oh. Right. So the horse is like super nervous all the time. But when they go to these shows and they finally snaked a, a you know, camera down its throat and the horse has got terrible ulcers. And it could be a good indicator that because the girl is so wound up and so like nervous all the time that the horse just absorbs that energy. So there's like a really interesting thing with like confidence. And they talk about this all the time at the barn, like be a confident rider. If you're confident, the horse is confident and they just feed off of energy. Mm-hmm. So it's, um, they're, uh, they're not the most intelligent animals, but they have huge and, and they're also pack animals. That's another weird one. They, they always have buddies. Mm-hmm. So like so-and-so will have a buddy and, uh, like one of the horses passed away and the friend to the other horse will go really quick. So we've had, um, like uh, lightning storms or whatever, and horses will die. And, um, if one passes away and they, they lose their buddy. The other one's close behind. So, well, good thing we're buddies with fish. Well, fish is a he's a loner. He's a lone yeah. wolf. Yeah, he's one man wolf pack. Well, he's uh, by, he's the shortest pony. He's the littlest. Short king. Yeah, he's a short king, and uh, he's so fat, dude. He's so funny though. I, I I tell him I was like, I'll take fish any day. He'll be my horse. But when I, I went and I saw him recently at the deal, this girl was on him, and she was like kind of like a little aggressive. And I told her I was like, you need to chill out, man. Fish doesn't need this female energy. It needs to be around some boys. Let me go get the dudes. I'll bring Cashy over and fish. You'll be fine with them. So, uh, but it's, uh, uh, it's really fascinating um, because they, they come down in, uh, in the pasture and they'll come down and feed like every couple of weeks and uh, just seeing like their clicks and how they react and this, it's really f- interesting, like how they act when they're kind of free and not within the writing, mm-hmm. you know, deal. So it's cool. I, I like watching them. I've never done equestrian therapy, but I've heard good things. Just haven't gotten a chance to. So if people want to get involved or they want to support it or, you know, how do people like 
take a shot across the bow and say, like, you know, because I'm sure people are going to listen to this podcast. Uh, is it awareness? Is it reaching out to people? Like, how do people get involved and in, to do the right thing? Well, like, um, there's a lot more clinical stuff I wanted to go over, but, you know, keeping it light, um, we didn't do too much. I mean, we did a little clinical information today regarding, you know, triggers and symptoms and what PTSD looks like and how to identify it in other people. So I feel as though we did a little bit of that. Um, if people are interested in following up, there's always the website. So I'm just going to do those plugs. So CSRT psychotherapy is my therapy website. It's the same thing for Instagram. So if you want to DM me, DM me there. When I put out the Instagram promo video and the SF community started reaching out, wanting to help. Also other communities wanted to help out. And one thing that I noticed that was a big barrier was when large organizations be like, sure, we'll give you something, but we want to see them wearing it. Like we'll send you shirts, but I want to see the veterans wearing it. I was like, I'm not going to send you a video, the, uh, the pet of that type of a thing. Like I'm going to show you one of these guys who's hurt because of his sacrifice with your shirt on it to give your company credibility. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to, um, go down on my integrity because I want your shirt and these guys don't need a shirt. Yeah. They're not fucking clothingless. Yeah. Um, and so then I lost a good amount of various organizations because of that. And I'm fine with it. But the organizations that did send stuff, they're like, okay, we'll just promise that you're doing good. So barefoot shoes, which is one of the organizations that Kabuki is a part of with Chris Duffin. When I reached out to them, they're like, we're going to do something more. So we're going to design a shirt for you. They designed a shirt for me with my logo and their logo. And for every sale that is made from this particular shirt goes into the nonprofit that I opened. But $25 really doesn't do much for therapy. So I told them for every shirt, a veteran gets a session of therapy, which is a lot more expensive than $25. And as that happened, I felt more uncomfortable just accepting things and giving promises that I couldn't back up. So we opened up a 501c3 in 2020, my husband did. And so now all donations, shirts or financial or fundraisers go through there so that it's completely transparent as to where the funds are going. And so that's the CSRT Foundation. The Project Resilience Resilience Program is a pilot program for combat veterans. I need to work out all the kinks to this program before we're able to expand it to police officers and to first responders and, you know, the other populations that we know need to be served. But if I open it up, we open it up really quickly right now because we just want to be seen, it's going to lose any kind of structure that it has just in order for it to grow. So reaching um, out to us could be done through CSRT Foundation with Instagram, um, CSRT Psychotherapy, and then the website that has our little promo video is combatstressreactiontreatment.com. We are doing multiple fundraisers. Like right now, the the coach that you guys went through with Brian, Mm -hmm. um, he did this really neat thing in which he made a workout program with a dietitian and with a strength and conditioning movement um, doctor. And between all three of them, they put the program out and all funds that are sold through that come to the nonprofit. Mm -hmm. And I'm getting more and more comfortable with doing that. 
Now, part of it is also that when we opened up the program, I had gyms who were owned by regular people, who were owned by firemen, army rangers, um, whatnot. And they're like, we want to be, be part of this. So they have to meet four criteria. Criteria one is they have to be trained under one of the modalities that we went over already so that I know that I can trust that they're working out properly with the veteran. Two is they have to be financially flexible with the veteran coming in. So whatever the veteran can pay, as long as the two of you are comfortable with that price point, it's a go. Three, they have to invite me and Christian to come out once a year in which I do a one-hour psychoeducational lecture with 30 minutes of Q&A. And then the second part of it is that Christian and the gym owner do a 60 to 90 minute workout boot camp type style in order to establish the community at the gym that we're invited to. So they're being provided information and the community. Me and Christian leave, and then it's the gym's responsibility to maintain that sense of community there. Those people that attended it have my information. So when they're ready to do therapy, they say, hey, you know, Dr. Case or Samantha or whatnot, let's go find me somebody. Then I reach out to my resources and say, who do you have in this community that can be their therapist? Because I don't cross state lines. My license is in California. Sure. I can't practice outside of California and maintain my license. Um, and so the fourth part is that they have to do a fundraiser once a year. Whatever income they bring in goes straight to the nonprofit. And that pays for uh, the lectures, that pays for therapy, that pays for the gym. If a veteran reaches out and says, hey, I can't cover this. They speak to me. I speak to whoever it is that they can't get covered. And then the money goes to that gym or that therapist to continue the care for that particular veteran. And then eventually the goal is to expand the lectures to be able to lecture to the spouses or the children so that they can be a better sense of support for the veteran who's struggling with what they're going through. Gotcha. Well, we hope to get power athlete involved one way or another. Yeah. So listeners look for that. Well, and if you have any questions, we can always uh, shoot us an email at info at Power Athlete HQ and we can forward them your information. So we'll hear here, folks. So thanks for tuning in. Another episode of Power Athlete Bye. Now it's time for you to empower your performance. Head to powerathletehq.com backslash training to choose from a number of programs to meet your specific performance goals. And if you like to break a mental sweat too, visit academy.powerathletehq.com and become a real stakeholder in you or your athlete's success. Until next time, bye!